Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Howard Scott Warshaw will join us to discuss Once Upon Atari. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, for those of a certain age, the Atari VCS was the video gaming system that defined their generation. And we're fortunate today to have one of the programmers of that era, Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw. Mr. Warshaw is the creator of some of the most famous and perhaps infamous games of the Atari 2600. And we're very pleased to have him on talk about his new book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Mr. Warshaw, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here today. Well, it's certainly a fascinating book you've put together here where you recount perhaps infamous time in the history of Atari, the lessons that you drew from that. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, there was, a, there was a number of reasons I put this book together. First, I wanted to put something positive out into the world, and this was something that was very important to me. And I also wanted to explain technology and programmer culture to non-nerds and people who struggle with it. I also wanted to share what I felt were some useful insights about life in general that I've accumulated over my many decades on the planet. I'm always interested in telling a story in a poignant and entertaining way if possible. But one of the main reasons I wrote the book, to tell you the truth, is to stop hearing people say, when are you going to write the Atari book, which people would constantly say to me. So I wanted to finally put that to rest. Also sort of a companion in a way to synonymously titled documentary about the same era. Well, I, I, I got into filmmaking for a while, and that was very exciting to me. I mean, I always looking for new creative ventures. And so I made Once Upon Atari, the documentary series, and I collected a bunch of people who were actually there working at Atari and put that whole series together. And at one point, somebody came to me and said, you know, the one thing that's really kind of missing in this documentary is you, because I had written, produced, and directed the whole thing. And I did some bridges in it, but I really wasn't that present in it. I let everybody else tell the story. And I decided it was time to actually tell my story, which was missing from that documentary. So they are companions, but they're not like a repeat of the other. The two of them go together to tell a much larger story, I hope. This is very much your story. And how did you become attracted to this industry? Well, I came to video games through kind of an odd back door. I mean, most people at Atari, particularly at the beginning, went there to make video games. That's, you know, Atari was video games. That's what you did. You go there to make video games. I was languishing at Hewlett Packard. My life has been a journey of trying to figure out what I want to do and hopefully not have to grow up. And what I found was I found a joy in computer programming that I never suspected was there in college. And then I got to Hewlett Packard and 100% of that joy dissipated and disappeared. <laughs> I was like, I was really lost for a moment. And a friend of mine who knew that I, the way I acted out because I was so bored when I was working at HP, 
He said, you know, the kind of stuff you do here, they do that all the time where my wife works. I said, well, what's that? That's Atari. So I went to Atari. I begged my way in for an interview. I went through the whole interview process and I realized they do the kind of programming that I really enjoy that could renew my passion. They were a wild, wacky group of people. So I needed that kind of stimulation. Oh, and by the way, they do games. Well, I like games, but games was like the third thing I wanted to do at Atari. So I went there for the environment and for the type of work I'd be doing. I had no idea how perfect a match it was going to be with Atari and I. I'm reminded of the Paul Poundstone joke. Why do people ask kids what they want to be when they grow up? It's because they're looking for ideas. <laughs> I like that. I mean, so what was that environment like? What were the people like there? What was the ethos that uh, you found in that particular environment that meshed with your personality so much? Well, what I found was an incredibly, just a pure creative environment with a bunch of people. You see, the thing that's interesting is like, some people are more right brain people, right? Very creative and wild artistic people. And some people are much more left brain where they're more analytical. And there's some people, some people sit right in the middle and they're sort of there, but some people are like have two big lobes and they need to use both. And that's where I am. And that's what I'm always looking for. So when I, things get too technical, I start to miss the creative. And when things get too creative, I sort of miss the technical analytical aspect. I, I really like the fusion, the mixture of both. And Atari was the first place that I had found that really had both. It was, you had to be really technically astute to be able to manage the technology, which was pretty wonky. And at the same time, you had to really have a sense of fun because there were people there who could program the system, but had no idea what to program and couldn't make something fun. And so you had to be a wacky, fun person who was also like kind of anal enough to be able to manage uh, technology and, and levels of detail that most people would shy away from. So, and I got to not only be there, but I got to meet a collection of people who were just like that. And when you get people who are like that, who are like super analytical, but also super creative, they come in a wide variety of very odd packages. And so the thing you would find there was that everybody there was someone who was like a real solid nerd level technologist and also an outrageously creative person. Everybody there had some other skill that had nothing to do with computers. I mean, there were musicians, there were artists, there were boat builders, there were craftspeople. Everybody had some other talent, some other interest and some interesting aspect of them. So you'd run into people, you'd bounce ideas off of them, and you never knew what you'd get back, but you knew it was going to be interesting. It was a place where every day you get up and you can't wait to get to work because what's going to happen today? It's also an interesting job description when what your job is, is to go to work and by the end of the day, you're supposed to have created something that didn't exist when you got up that morning. That was your challenge every day. I love that. I just love that environment. It sounds like a place that cultured artists and that it was just the computers that were the canvas at the time and unique canvas and people could brainstorm what they could possibly create on this new device. Exactly. And that's really the point of it. It's like some people say, well, what do you do at Atari? Well, we were making games or we were programming computers. The truth of it is what we were doing was pioneering a new medium, right? Interactive television was what was happening. That's what we were doing. And this was the forefront. This was the, the wild frontier of interactive television. Television was this incredible passive medium that had taken the world over and we were turning it into an interactive medium. 
So people would no longer be the zombie sitting on the couch staring at the tube. Now you could be the zombie sitting on the couch with a controller yelling at the tube. <laughs> it was a whole new innovation in entertainment. And it was very exciting to be at the crux of that. You had creator of a number of the more popular games of the time, uh, Yars Revenge, Indiana Jones, for uh, those who remember those games from that era, and also, famously, the game touted as being the game that led to the downfall of the video game industry of the time, that was E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Absolutely, E.T. Yeah, and I'm not shy about that. It's okay. It's uh, A lot of people have deemed E.T. the game that destroyed the video game industry, and that led to the subtitle of the book, right? How I Made History by Killing an Industry. The idea with 8K of computer code, I could actually destroy a multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> it was amazing to have that kind of power. I don't know that it's true, but who can resist the moniker? Well, for those who are not familiar with the story behind how this game came to fruition and the enormous pressures that you were put under and the reception that it eventually received. Well, the book Once Upon Atari is principally focused around the creation of the E.T. video game. It's also like largely the story of my life and my entire career at Atari and how that warped and shifted my life in different directions. But the main focus is the development of the E.T. video game, which was extremely controversial in that, for one thing, it was the biggest video game license ever endeavored by monetarily, right? Atari spent more money on this license than anybody had ever spent. In fact, they spent more money on this license than Warner spent buying Atari in the first place. <laughs> Actually spent more money on the license. And what's interesting is the most expensive video game license in history got the shortest schedule of any game ever on the VCS. So when they were negotiating with the rights for Spielberg and they were working, I was busy finishing up the Raiders of the Lost Ark game where I had worked with Steven Spielberg. They wanted to do the E.T. game for a Christmas market. And this was pre-internet, right? So nowadays when you're going to do something, you can drop it on the internet and collect some feedback. You can tweak it. You can modify it. You can put it out again. There's no problem. But in the 80s, couldn't do that. In the 80s, it was a physical product that had to go out, which meant if you want to have something for the Christmas market, you can't drop it December 15th, right? It has to be done in time to get on shelves in November, which means it has to be into production by September 1st. And the negotiation went into late July. So by the time everything was all said and done and we owned the license and there was time to find someone to do the game, there were five weeks left, five weeks and one day, technically. And so the head of Atari, who had negotiated with Spielberg, called in to my boss's boss and said, hey, you know, the head of VCS development, we need uh, ET and we need it in five weeks. And he just laughed and said, you can't do it. You can't, you know, a video game then took a minimum of five to six months and typically a little more. So and they said, well, we need it in five weeks. And he said, you can't do it. But I had already done Yars Revenge, which was one of the largest selling original games that Atari ever produced. And I had just finished the Raiders of the Lost Ark game and Steven Spielberg and I had worked together some. And I think Spielberg actually asked for me to do the game. So after Ray Kazar, who was the head of the company, got the rejection, he actually called me directly. I actually got a phone call at my desk from my boss's 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 boss, which never happens. <laughs> and so, and, uh, he said, hey, we need the game in five weeks. Can you do it? And I just said, absolutely. And because I was sure, I was positive that I could do it. 
and launched on one of the most incredible journeys that I've ever endured, I have to say, and actually just drove myself into the ground trying to deliver the game and did deliver a completed full game in five weeks. It was released, and I have to say, being a kid at the time, I did get the copy of the game. And to put it mildly, it was somewhat lacking. <laughs> I understand completely. The reception, of course, was a little lukewarm, but it was, as you put it, driven by this profit motive of just wanting to have something out there by the Christmas break. It was. It was, it was all about the timing. Because when I got to Atari, it was the most amazing place I ever, ever worked, and I loved it. It was fabulous, and it was an amazingly creative, focused, creativity-driven environment, product-driven environment. And when I got there, I thought, this is crazy, so great. And there were people there going, ah, man, this place used to be so good. And I'm like, what do you mean used to be so good? <laughs> this place is amazing. But what I didn't realize when I first walked in the door, but I would come to learn there was an incredible transition that was taking place. And when you walk in the middle of a transition, you don't know because everything that's already there is just the way it's always been and who knows what's going to happen. But there was this transition going from the Nolan Bushnell Atari, which was a creativity-based, fun-oriented, product-driven place to be, to the Warner and Ray Kazar regime, which was profit-focused and schedule-focused and the product quality kind of fell from the priority list. It dropped substantially. And that was very depressing to a lot of developers, right? Because developers are all about the quality of their product usually. But you got to have profits too. It's an important part of the company. But the one thing Atari could never seem to do was find a balance between the creative drive and the profit-seeking motive. It just never could. And in the Nolan regime, it was all about creativity. And then under the Gazar regime, it shifted way over the other side to be equally imbalanced in the profit side. And that's the thing about Atari that was just so amazing to be there was that it was a bunch of really smart, really talented, really capable people all joining hands and walking off a cliff together, you know, just making really reasonable, sensible decisions from their point of view. But what was the goal, what we were trying to do, that's what shifted enormously. There was a cultural shift that went on at Atari like no one had ever seen, I think, in business. And it really changed the course and dynamics of what went on and ultimately led to the destruction of the industry for a while. And I was right in the middle of it. Was it just a general change that was going on throughout the industry at the time where the idealistic visions of a lot of these companies, including Atari, were giving way to profit-driven motives that put quality second? Well, the thing was that when word got out, the thing was Atari was a privately held company and then Warner got it and Warner, it became the incredible profit center of Warner, but Warner didn't tell anybody about it, right? Most people did not realize how much money there was to be made in video games. And what happened was there was at one point, some of the engineers wanted more of a share of the pie because they were generating these huge profits for a very small salary. And, and that was it. And when Atari wouldn't play ball with them, some engineers left the company and formed their own outside company. And that's when financiers and Wall Street got the word of how much money that could be made in video games. And that did two things. For one, it created this huge stampede 
of people trying desperately just to pop in and put anything out on the machine because anything would sell or would make money. And that really decayed the quality. But it also led this thing of, hey, you know, in, in marketing, there was the idea that a license is going to push everything and make it go. And we don't need a game. We just need something to sit behind the license and let that go. And ET was like one of the ultimate examples of that kind of thinking. So they actually took more time negotiating the license than they did to develop the game, which may seem absurd. But to people who have no idea what happens in development, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense. Development are the people we ask to give us a game. And that's it. Now, how did E.T. become the face of the whole crash? Well, you know, in media, we all know that when you're going to tell a story, if you want to tell a big story, you've got to tell the story through the eyes of someone, you know, an individual. There has to be someone who we can see what's happening, what's there. You need a face for a tragedy, right? And if you think of the crash of the video game industry as a tragedy, E.T. became the face of that tragedy and I became the butt behind that face, basically. Well, it did lead to some interesting moments. There's the famous landfill where all these copies that went unsold supposedly were buried, and then unearthing of all these ZT cartridges certainly is a compelling visual for telling that story. Absolutely. You know, and in, in my book, Once Upon Atari, it, there's like three levels of story that are going on in timelines that are woven together. And one is that day at the dig in Alamogordo because that was an amazing day for me in that here it is, you know, we're supposed to be unearthing the fact that the game that I made was so horrible that Atari had to ship it out in the desert and bury it just to get it out of sight because there was so much shame around it, right? And then there's the ET development, which is also woven about that, and that covered over five weeks. And then the other part is my life before and after what went on, and all of those are woven together because it's hard to tell any one of those stories without telling the others because they all interweave and intersect in such interesting places. When it did come up, I never thought there were games there. I always thought that was an absurd idea that a company that was so failing financially would spend extra money to get rid of product they deem worthless. It just seems like an absurd thing. And I have, I have an economics degree before I ever went into engineering. And so I was very interested in the business aspects of what was going on at Atari, in addition to the engineering aspects. And then when I became a psychotherapist, it became the, uh, more of the psychological dynamics that I experienced there became clearer in my head. And that was another reason I had to write this book was because, you know, being an economist and a computer engineer and a game developer and a psychotherapist, it's an interesting skill set to be able to bring all these perspectives to what's going on. And the truth is there were dynamics and politics and things that went on at Atari that are no different than what happens at any kind of tech company today. And I got to tell you, if people think it's odd that I became a psychotherapist having been a programmer. Most people don't think of programmers as the kind of people who are going to become therapists. And I understand that. Although I think it's a misnomer because actually, if you think about it, therapists and programmers, we're all systems analysts right? It's just that therapists work on much more sophisticated hardware. But I went on in that direction and I thought it was very interesting to tell the story of what was really happening because in computers, everything is new every couple of years. You have to completely redo your education, renew your skill set. Things change so much. And after decades in the computer industry, I just got tired of that. What I realized is that people you know, an individual can change, but people as a whole, people don't change that much. And the kind of 
issues that people have back then and 100 years ago are the same kind of issues people have now. The toys are different, but the issues are the same. And so that's why I switched to psychotherapy, so I'd have less homework and could do more productive work. You are a psychotherapist in Silicon Valley, no less, and you see a lot of these same stories playing out constantly. Does it amuse you, frustrate you? What's your impression about how the industry has developed and stayed the same? Well, it is amusing to me. In some ways, it's actually reaffirming to me and reassuring because I do work with people now. I mean, I am the Silicon Valley therapist. That's my brand. And I work with Silicon Valley leaders and the super intelligent. You know, those are the populations. Another way I put it is I work with nerds and people trying to love them. It is interesting to see the same patterns and the same things repeated over and over and over again. But also when I'm working with people who are on really tight schedules or feel really squeezed or having trouble at home because they're so intense with their work scheduling that they're really losing ground in their home life and family life. And these are all things I've experienced and saw so many different versions and shades of it at Atari and at other places I've worked. So I can work with people like that and really understand and relate to their predicament. And I can do it faster than most other therapists who haven't had this experience. So what it does, it saves people time in session of having to explain less. And that saves them money. And so it's a very symbiotic thing is that I can work with high tech people at a higher level of efficiency. One of the ironies of being a therapist is that your job is to obsolete yourself, right? If a therapist does a good job, you don't need your therapist anymore because you're okay. And I take that very seriously. My job is to obsolete myself as rapidly as possible. Or as Einstein, you know, would say to paraphrase him, I, I want to get clients out of my office as soon as possible, but no sooner. I think you'll find a constant stream of clients waiting at your door. There doesn't seem to be a shortage, that's for sure. Really fascinating tale that you, you put in the book, Once Upon Atari, really a story of your life. Looking back, would you have done anything differently? Is it uh, something that you would do again if you had the chance? Well, I mean, that's a great question, Charles, i got to say, because looking back and would I have done something different is something I try not to spend too much time on, but I go there a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, when it comes to doing the ET game, people say, you know, well, I mean, I even discuss in the book, if I were to have done the game again, if I had an extra day, what would I have done differently if I had an extra week? If I had an extra week, that would be a 20% increase in schedule. You know, I, I, there's a lot of ways I could go, but the truth is, if I could go back and redo the game ET, I don't know that I would do anything differently because I could go back and make a couple of tweaks and turn it into an okay game. And if I did that, we probably wouldn't be talking right now, and I would not want to have missed this opportunity. Neither would I, and I'm glad we've had it. And just to close then, uh, just talking with Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw. He's the author of the new book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Mr. Warshaw, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.